nearly two decades. The award-winning Your Financial Editor program on 930 WFMD. News from the worlds of business and finance with your financial editor, Chris Murray. Welcome back. This is Chris Murray, your financial editor on Free Talk Radio 930 WFMD and, of course, at WFMD.com. And the Your Financial Editor program is available as a podcast on iTunes, so you can uh, listen to the programming there as well. As I mentioned uh, right before the news break, we were going to be jumping into our conversation. Uh, Very glad to have with us this morning Mr. Bill Dunkelberg. He's a chief economist for the National Federation of Independent Business. Um, He's also just, he's nationally known. Uh, You've probably seen him on TV, heard him on the radio, read stuff that he's written over the years. Uh, He's a a national authority on small business and entrepreneurship. He's a professor of economics at the School of Business and Management at Temple University. Uh, He's also worked at other universities. And uh, just really glad to have him on the program this morning. Good morning, Mr. Dunkelberg. Good morning. How are you? I'm fine, sir. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. So, um, if you will, tell our listeners just a little bit about the NFIB and, and what you do and, and your purpose and service. Sure. Well, NFIB was founded uh, back in 1943, believe it or not, as, as kind of a counterpunch to the uh, Chamber of Commerce. Uh, which was dominated by the firms that gave the most money. So if you join NFIB, there's a limit to how much you can pay. And I'll say just for fun, $200 membership, and the most you could pay is a thousand. So they're not they're not dominated by uh, people who are putting money in to support the organization. And the way they they handle their lobbying on behalf of small businesses is to take votes of all their members, uh, which are a lot, 300,000 or so members, to take votes on issues to find out what is really of concern to small business owners across the country and then use that uh, to to set the legislative agenda uh, to take to Congress and all 50 state capitals. So that's where NFIB is in all those places looking out for small businesses. Now, the economics part, well, we started that back in 1973, uh, when I was teaching at Stanford at the time, and their headquarters was in California. Now it's in uh, Washington and uh, Nashville. <clears throat> but basically, we take a random sample of the membership every month and mail out 10,000 questionnaires on the first day of the month and collect the data. And uh, we've been tracking it now for all those years, so, so 45, six, seven years. We've watched uh, what happens to the small business sector, what happens on Main Street um, through booms and busts, and that provides us a lot of insight uh, into what's happening uh, to all those small businesses who produce half of our private gross domestic product and employ half of our our workforce. So our last report was released Tuesday morning, as I think he's pointed out, and uh, had some good news in it. The optimism index went up, and that's always a good sign. 
Yeah, and, and uh, again, I appreciate the NFIB Small Business Optimism uh, Index. You know, I mean, we talk about it uh, every month here on the program. And one thing I'll be, uh, you know, totally forthright with you, I'm often critical of economists because so many of them seem to get it so wrong. And that really, well, I haven't seen a change in that lately, whereas I've noticed over the years following the NFIB, um, you're always not only accurate, it seems, but you seem to, um, with the way you and the CEO and others that uh, make statements in the uh, the index, you seem to phrase things in a more um, more correct way. It's not, you know, it's not uh, too pessimistic. It's not overblown on the good side. So I've always appreciated that about uh, the the information that you put out. And again, realizing that you know most of that is coming from the members of the NFIB. Well, thank you. Yeah, we just try to report what the uh, small business owners are telling us out there, and of course. Uh, that's a very good indicator of what's going on in the economy. If you watch the index, you'll see that it turns down pretty sharply uh, two or three quarters before the official start of a recession. So it tells you that bad times are coming, and that's one of the value valuable things of a leading indicator. You know, it tells you ahead of time to get ready. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, talking with our guest this morning, Mr. Bill Dunkelberg. He's the chief economist for the National Federation of Independent Business, and um, he's also uh, a professor at Temple. And you can find more information out. Uh, you can go to NFIB.com, and it's a wonderful website. It's a great resource for you where you can um, get a lot of, uh, of free information and, and resources. And um, also, if you want, there is a Join Now uh, tab on the upper right-hand side you'd see. I know we have a lot of uh, business owners that listen to the program, and we appreciate you guys. And if that would be helpful for you, um, you know, help yourself uh, to to getting that that information. So um, how and I know this is a loaded question, but how difficult has it been for the smaller businesses with COVID-19? Well, real difficult, real difficult because, you know, we're we're for the most part non-essential businesses you know, restaurants and beauty parlors and little retailers and so on. And so when the government decided that it was going to use the economy and to shut down the economy as as a way to fight COVID and the spread of COVID, you know, we were really dramatically impacted by uh, by what happened. And, of course, the other thing that had part of that policy was to tell everybody to stay home and shelter in place and, and that, uh, you know, that meant that we didn't have any customers, and that was very difficult. So our our reports of sales declines were incredible. Uh, and one of the questions we asked, for example, is, you know, over the last three months, your sales have been higher or lower than the quarter before, and uh, that hit 45-year uh, record uh, low numbers. So it was very dramatic and very painful. There was really no time to get ready for it, right? I mean, January and February were really good uh, economies. Uh, February has been picked as the peak of the last expansion, that, that long expansion that we had, record expansion. And uh, But, you know, it just dropped, uh, dropped immediately uh, on our laps. If you look at the last government-caused 
recession, where the government really actively caused a recession, was back with Paul Volcker in the 19, early 1980s. And you probably you sound like you're too young to remember 17% mortgage, but <laughs> I'm not. I had one. Um, the, you know, the economy, of course, had a recession with a 10% unemployment rate, but it took a year to get there. Uh, this time, it took us a month to get to 10% unemployment rates and higher. It's currently around 11. So this has been pretty dramatic and very painful for Main Street. Yeah, absolutely. And um, we've got to squeeze in a break here. But when we come back, one of the things you mentioned that I've had a really hard time with is this essential and non-essential. So um, we'll get your take on that on the other side of this break and uh, wrap things up with my guest. Uh, who I'm really ha- uh, happy to have with us this morning, Mr. Bill Dunkelberg. He's the chief economist for the NFIB, and we'll continue with him on the other side. Third shot, damn, I'm in trouble. I'm a newly single man, seeing double. Take a smile for all my friends, then go home alone around 2 a.m., then... Stumble through the front door, gone as it gets. Flip the kitchen light on, there it is on the fridge. Well, just my luck, read this if. Welcome back. This is Chris Murray, your financial editor on Free Talk Radio 930 WFMD. And at WFMD.com, don't forget, you can get the Your Financial Editor program as a podcast. My, how things have changed since we started doing the show 22 years ago with all this technology. It's amazing. But uh, really, you can have it at your fingertips and uh, and enjoy it. Um, finishing up our conversation this morning with our guest, very glad to have uh, Mr. Bill Dunkelberg's taking some time out of his busy schedule uh, to join us on the program. He's the chief economist for the NFIB, the National Federation of Independent Business. And you can go to NFIB.com and uh, check out the organization, all the information they put out and the resources that they have. You can become a member. Uh, one of the things we've touched on so far is their latest report, uh, Small Business Optimism Index, that came out a few days ago. And one of the things, Mr. Dunkelberg, you mentioned, um, you know, with the government and this forced shutdown and shelter in place was uh, them basically deciding who was essential and who was not essential as far as businesses out there. How did your members feel about that? Well, nobody liked that very much. Uh, the ones that got exempted were at least uh blessed with a little bit more business and some revenue than the ones who had to actually close their doors. Uh, and NFIB, I guess, is a non-essential business, so we're all hunkered down in our various homes uh, running running the show because we can't go into the to our office yet in uh, Washington, D.C. So it's been, it's been tough. Some industries have really done okay. Uh, in the scheme of things, construction has uh, stayed pretty strong, manufacturing has stayed pretty strong, and uh, transportation as well. And so they figured out uh, either a way to become uh, essential or they figured out how to satisfy whoever, whatever state governor or 
they have on uh, on complying with COVID safety rules, which is basically distance and the mask. So <clears throat> some have done all right, but others obviously uh, they, they haven't seen a, a dollar uh, of revenue and don't have any customers because those really small retailers, or or if you look at a barber shop or a beauty parlor or these kinds of things, you know they don't have an internet uh, connection where you can. It's, well, it's hard. It's hard to eat at a restaurant on the internet, you know. Yeah, or get your so, haircut. You're right. <laughs> so, so you know they've had a really hard time, and they they've really been helped with the PPP program. Virtually all of our people applied for a loan under the PPP, to, so you had to use that money to kind of keep your employees around and give them some money so they'd have money to spend, which was a great idea, except that once they got the money, or once you got your check in the mail, for example, from the government, you had no place to go to spend it. So I guess they didn't think about that part. but um, <clears throat> So they were, they were all uh, delighted to see that kind of support, and it was certainly uh, quick. That was very good, but uh, still leaves us a long way uh, away. Out of the, out of the uh, initial unemployment that we had, we're about a third of them are back to work, but we still have about 16, 17 million people who are unemployed, most of whom, 80% of whom or so, think that they're going to be recalled to work at the firms that laid them off. Um, do you have any sense of uh, how many of your members, uh, unfortunately, won't be able to make it back from this? We hear uh, various statistics of this is just too devastating for certain industries, certain businesses. Of course, it depends on their location and if they have other resources. Um, but, you know, there is a lot of talk that um, certain uh, businesses won't be able to recover. Do you guys have your uh, kind of your, your finger on that pulse yet? Uh, no, we don't. You know, we 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 recruit members, but they never tell us exactly why when they become a non-member. And of course, one way you become a non-member is you go out of business. Um, and bankruptcies are up substantially, and looking at the government statistics, and we'll probably lose a lot of a lot of firms that'll be in some areas like. Uh, retailing and uh, and restaurants, of course, and those kinds of things. Um, people won't be able to hang on. Uh, they certainly had no time to prepare for this, as we said. You know, we, you know, the first two weeks in March, everybody was really happy, and because we could look at the survey numbers as they came in. And uh, the second two weeks in March, of course, is when the government brought the hammer down, and life become real became terrible. All very quickly, so they didn't have a chance to really get ready and prepare. So it'll be costly um, as recessions, you know, are. But uh, the small business sector is optimism is coming back. The index is now above the historical average, so it made uh, gained six points to a hundred point one, hundred point one, <clears throat> uh, in last month. So you know we'll we'll come back as a group, but there's going to be a lot of uh, wailing and gnashing of teeth as people try to figure out what they're going to do. Yeah, exactly. And like you said, it was so violent for these businesses. I mean, individuals also who may have gotten laid off or furloughed or whatever it may be. But if you're, you know, trying to run a business and your margins are thin and depend timing wise, how long 
you know, you've been uh, in business and the different resources you have. I, I can't imagine, you know, it's just, well, I can because I talk to a lot of people. And it was just very, very hard uh, when it began. And it's still hard for a lot of people. Um, I would imagine with your uh, membership, you have a lot of fiscal conservative uh, type small business owners. Uh, you know, they don't like a lot of waste. Are you getting any feedback? Uh, I was talking at the beginning of the program about Larry Kudlow this week, the economic advisor at the White House, talking about the fourth uh, phase of the stimulus package coming out for the coronavirus situation um, and what it may or may not have in it. I guess we won't know till the end of the month. But um, do you think that we need more stimulus or relief, whatever people want to call it? Probably, probably we do. Um, and part of that is just because of the way the government policy to fight COVID uh, is designed, which is to keep people from doing anything. Uh, so, um, you know, they'll, they'll try to figure out how to provide a stimulus. I mean, how do you stimulate the economy when you tell the consumer to stay home? You can send them money, but, uh, you know, that's, that's not going to be helpful. For example, the savings rate uh, two months ago was out of income was 33%. That's, I mean, it's unheard of in our right. history. Usually the savings rate is like 5% yep. or 4% or somewhere. I mean, so all this money is going to consumers, but they can't get out and, and give it to the small business owners um, because of the, you know, the, the COVID regulations. So it's a very complicated uh, you know, uh, problem, I have to say. I would, I'm glad I don't have to make policy uh, for this, so there will, but there will be more stimulus because, hey, you know, it looked bad if you didn't have something. Um, a lot of it will focus more, I think, on lower income people uh, because they seem to be spending. So if you look at consumers, the lower income consumers have taken their spending back up to kind of February levels. So that's you know that was a good economy. The laggards here are high income, higher income consumers who have all this money and uh, and aren't spending and of course what the reason they're not spending is that they can't they can't go out and uh, do boating trips and do whatever you do <laughs> but uh, so the money's not coming back out into the economy so it'll be structured differently but um, I think we'll have more stimulus because we won't have picked up speed enough and the growth rate uh, to continue to lower the unemployment rate. Yeah, and you know we've. Uh, I know this week, uh, a couple of days ago, I saw the uh, retail sales number um, that came from the Commerce Department, and it shows that people want to get out there and they want to spend money. Uh, it was up seven and a half percent. I think it was like five hundred and twenty-four billion dollars of retail sales in the month of June, up uh, quite a bit from where it was in May. And it was yeah. broad-based. April, April was a record decline. Exactly. In yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it was broad. Yeah. I mean, you people were buying automobiles, furniture, clothing. It looked like uh, electronics. You know, they wanted to get out. They wanted to go to dinner or go to lunch. And they were kind of trying to, you know, go through that maze of, as you've alluded to a couple times, these restrictions. And it's 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 even though it's hard, they seem to do it. So it feels like we're going in the right direction. The the thing that just scares the heck out of me is that they're going to start with these, you know, shutdowns and they're going to become a rolling issue again. Yeah, could be. I mean, a, a fundamental problem here is that, uh, 
Now, you can lead the horse to a water, but you can't make him drink. So the, we gave the consumers all this money, but until until they feel safe uh, going out into the malls and out to dinner and lunch and so on or out to the beaches, until they feel collectively safe, why the spending will be suppressed. And uh, that'll be an issue that the government can't do a whole lot about, you know. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I guess, like you're saying, you you, you uh, made that uh, quib that you know you wouldn't want to be making policy, but hopefully, with this additional um, relief coming with another uh, coronavirus uh, or stimulus, whatever you want to call it, um, that it will be targeted and that it won't be a, a whole lot of waste because uh, we really do need to worry about the the national deficit. Yeah, we do, and uh, we won't be paying much attention to that, of course, in the, in the really short term, because they're going to do whatever they feel they need to do and worry about it later. Uh, <clears throat> we hope they'll worry about it anyway, but, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, what we'll do is, you know, continue to improve, uh, and as we kind of find better ways to deal with the virus and maybe get better experience with it, and uh, it doesn't show spreading so much. Why, of course, that'll help uh, consumer spending to pick up, and that's the lifeblood of the small business sector. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, our guest this morning, Mr. Bill Dunkelberg, he's the chief economist for the National Federation of Independent Business (NFIB). You can go to nfib.com and learn all about it, and uh, check out all the resources um, and the educational information that you can get just off the website. You can become a member. Um, but, uh, Mr. Dunkelberg, I really appreciate you taking time, uh, out of your schedule to join us. Your information was, was great. I, I, I really appreciate it. And I know the listeners do as well. Thank you. Uh, well, we're hunkered down here, so call anytime. <laughs> we'll do that, sir. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. And, um, again, folks, you can go to NFIB.com. Um, you know, it's similar like when we have, uh, Karen Kerrigan on, who is the CEO for the Small Business and Entrepreneurial Council. You know, you go to a lot of these websites that they have, and there's just a, a, a massive amount of data that can educate you and inform you. And then if you want to take it another step and become a member, become involved, you can do that. And it'll help, uh, I think, you know, tremendously so that you really understand what's going on as opposed to the craziness of, um, you know, of, of people telling you that things are a certain way when really they're not. They're not as bad and um, not as dire as far as I'm concerned. So check that stuff out. I, th I think it's, a, it's a, a, a big benefit and opportunity for you. So that does it for us. Join me on the um, Morning News Express with my friend Bob Miller. Of course, we're doing that every um, weekday morning at um, 550, 650, 750. And um, we'll, uh, we'll give you a business update. And then we'll be back here next uh saturday and talk to you with one of our programs and and with uh, uh a new guest and um enjoy the rest of your weekend this is chris murray wishing you and your family financial success yeah i'm a simple man ain't no other way to say it i lay my cards on the table only way i play it i got some jaw in my y'all they can't imitate it I'm tough and rowdy reckless rough around the edges but ever since you came around, I've been thinking thoughts that I need to get out. So I, I grabbed a pen and a, a napkin and I wrote.
old tears down. Yeah, my tractor's green, my pasture's greener, my tea's sweet, but on your sweeter and my road is dirt, your heart is gold. I'm a man of few words, but baby, here it goes. My neck is red, my collar's blue. This is 9.30 WFMD and WFMD.com. Now, WFMD News. Ten indictments are returned on Friday by the Frederick County Grand Jury. One was against 46-year-old Camilla Arnall, who has no fixed address. She's charged with one count of kidnapping a child under 16 and two counts of second-degree assault. State's Attorney Charlie Smith says Arnall was arrested for trying to take a child at Baker Park last month. This defendant approached a family in Baker Park. A 14-year-old godparent of several young children was babysitting them. The defendant came up and began pushing the 2-year-old on the swing. Babysitter asked her to stop. She began yelling at the babysitter, saying that she was not the child's mom, and then picked up the child and tried to run away from her. Smith says the 14-year-old went after Arnold and a tug-of-war took place. Also indicted was 34-year-old Brandon Burdett of Frederick, who's charged with first-degree malicious burning and first-degree arson. This was uh, someone who actually tried to set fire to the Petco uh, over on Route 40, so he was indicted for malicious burning and first-degree arson. Um, it did a lot of damage to the Petco, including wiring and paint on the walls. These indictments move these cases to the circuit court, where trial dates will be scheduled. There's been a surge in COVID-19 cases around the country, and that includes the state of Maryland. At his news conference on Thursday, Governor Larry Hogan strongly urged Marylanders to keep up their guard and continue taking safety precautions to keep the coronavirus at bay. He says wearing a mask is the best way to protect yourself. I mean, it's that simple. It's not that hard. Just wear the damn masks. The governor also said he's concerned about complacency on the part of some individuals and businesses when it comes to the COVID-19 crisis. And he's also said the coronavirus could be with us well into 2021. I'm Kevin McManus, WFMD News. News. I'm Karen McHugh. Still no declared winner in the race for president. Biden's campaign seemed to be waiting as long as they could for a call in any state that would put him over the top. But he finally came out at the Chase Center. Again, confident, but asking for patience. Meanwhile, President Trump is showing no signs of being ready to concede, tweeting, Joe Biden should not wrongfully claim the office of the president. I could make that claim also. Legal proceedings are just now beginning. Fox's Griff Jenkins. Meanwhile, a pair of runoffs in Georgia could determine who controls the Senate. Republican Senator David Perdue under the 50% mark by Georgia law. That means he's going to have to have a runoff against his 33-year-old Democratic opponent, John Ossoff, who is campaigning on a platform of change. The other race will feature Republican Senator Kelly Leffler against Democratic challenger Reverend Raphael Warnock. Both races will be held on January 5th. Fox's Steve Harrigan. America is listening to Fox News. Financial Editor with Chris Murray on 930 WFMD. Welcome back. This is Chris Murray, your financial editor on Free Talk Radio 930 WFMD at WFMD.com. And of course, uh, it's available as a podcast. 
uh, just go to iTunes and uh, you just search your financial editor and it'll uh, come up for you. And um, as I mentioned before the break, uh, really glad to have our guest, uh, friend of the program, uh, back on, Professor Peter Pitts. He's a former FDA associate commissioner. He's a visiting professor at the University of Paris School of Medicine. He was named one of the 300 most powerful people in American healthcare by Modern Healthcare Magazine. He's written books and papers and um, really glad to have him on this morning because, again, we want to try to get our arms wrapped around this COVID-19 stuff. There is, um, well, a gazillion different ways you can go with it, depending on who you're listening to and what types of uh, statistics people are using. But we wanted to get uh, Professor Pitts on this morning to join us to kind of give us an overview. Good morning, Professor Pitts. How are you? I'm very well. Thanks for having me on. Oh, absolutely. It's good to have you back on. I appreciate you taking time out of your weekend. And um, if you will, just kind of give our listeners uh, what you think the current status is of COVID-19. Kind of where are we as, uh, as, as this disease goes? Sure. That's like a 20-hour conversation, so I'll try to be <laughs> concise. I think, you know, obviously, the no, there are a couple of pieces of news that are on people's mind. The first is what's happening with this infection spike. And uh, what you see is what you get. You know, As we re- reopen our economy and people are not responsible relative to uh, wearing masks and keeping social distance and you know, enhancing their personal hygiene, we're seeing spikes. And it's in, the, in a younger population. I think if you watch the news and you see people congregating at restaurants and beaches and bars and social protests, uh, and the, the kind of the logical person can assume it's people under the age of, of 50, possibly under the age of 40. Uh, now, the bad news is that the infection rates are going up. The good news is that that is not necessarily a high-risk population. While the infection uh, rates are going up, however, uh, the uh, survival rates are also going up, or just Put it another way, the death rates are going down quite substantially nationwide. And that's because we've understood uh, with this wily virus how to protect those most at risk. Older people, people with respiratory conditions, people with other serious underlying health care conditions because of new therapeutics, ways to deal with uh, infection rates, and most importantly, uh, the urgency of protecting uh, people that live in senior facilities. So it is bad news uh, mixed with good news. Uh, the next question I generally get is, where are we relative to a vaccine? And the good news is that, you know, there are companies, biopharmaceutical companies, uh, government healthcare ministries, and academia working together to really solve this problem at warp speed. I think that we'll have a vaccine for the general population by the uh, first quarter of 2021. And that's actually incredibly fast. It can take up to five years to get a new vaccine. Another president's been talking about a vaccine uh, by Thanksgiving. I just don't think that's plausible. You know, of course, I hope I'm wrong, but I'm have to deal with you know what I think is right here. And there'll also probably be more than one vaccine. Uh, there'll be a vaccine that's best for children. There'll be a vaccine that's best for you know older people, and there'll be probably a number of vaccines for the general population. So overall, there's, there's a lot going on. We also have new therapeutics for treating those most at risk in hospital. Uh, make sure they get out of the hospital on their own two feet. Uh, we're not dealing with a ventilator shortage because not only do we have more ventilators, but we're also getting people off ventilators faster or making that not necessarily from the very beginning. 
So I think there's good news rather than the, uh, you know, the predictions of gloom and doom that we're seeing in the newspapers all the time. Yeah, I agree. And I, I think, again, one of the uh, points of frustration for a lot of people that seek the truth is, and you already, uh, you already touched on this, is uh, the death rate. So I know I saw something from an economist this week. Uh, he sent it to me that um, there were 273 deaths from COVID-19 on uh, Sunday, June 28th. That's, that was down 84% from the Sunday peak of April 19th. But yet you just hear the word spike, new wave, um, you know, additional cases. But it, I, I find it very frustrating that the people that tell you that don't give you uh, the complete information that there is a little bit of the silver lining right now where those death rates are going down. And as you mentioned, people are getting off of uh, ventilators uh, more quickly. So um, do, do you think that's going to continue that type of trend? We'll see the death rate continue to uh, decline and, and also people be able to weather this uh, COVID-19 in, in stronger ways? I definitely think and I also hope that the death rates continue to go down. Again, I don't see why that should change. We know how to deal with the virus better for those most at risk, and we're getting stronger at that effort, you know, almost every day. You know, the infection rates are, are worrisome, uh, even though uh, younger populations are coming down with, with the symptoms, uh, and they may, you know, get through them quicker or be asymptomatic altogether. We are still learning that there are a lot of side effects from people that have had the virus, even healthy young people. Uh, one example that comes to uh, my mind, that I'm hearing a lot, are people losing their sense of smell and having it not come back. Uh, there are a lot of things going on. We have to collect the data and understand. So, you know, simply it's okay for people to get, it's okay for young people, healthy people to get infected. I, I want to caution against that. You know, this is still a very dangerous uh, virus. But, you know, I think the whole story has to be told so we can really understand the risk-benefit analysis of opening our economy. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, and you touched on this a moment ago. I'll circle back around. You know, I was uh, talking on the program. It was last week or the week uh, before about uh, Michael Milken, an interview that um, I saw with him and him talking about, the, uh, like you had said, the the number of government agencies and uh, nonprofit and for-profit, everybody working together where there's hundreds of vaccines in the works and antibodies and all kinds of uh, different things. I know I just saw this week that uh, Novavax uh, received $1.6 billion of, uh, of taxpayer money to fund uh, clinical studies uh, of its experimental vaccine. And also Regeneron uh, Pharmaceuticals, they received $450 million also of taxpayer money to uh, manufacture thousands of doses of uh, their experimental treatment. Um, I, I mean, is, is this the first time you've ever seen this type of uh, of work where everyone's really kind of shoulder to shoulder trying to get to the bottom of this? It is. Uh, this is a great story. You know, you know, it's the healthcare ecosystem that you're having an all hands on deck proposition. And you know, when it comes to manufacturing vaccines, I mean, there are lots of pieces to the puzzle. It's hard. But many of the companies that are developing these experimental vaccines are doing what's called manufacturing at risk. And what that means is even before they have studies that determine whether the vaccine works, whether well before they get any type of you know, government approval, FDA approval, uh, they're spending their own money to manufacture millions or hundreds of millions of doses. 
uh, and, and if their vaccines fail, uh, they're going to be in the hole for a whole lot of money, government money notwithstanding. So I think it shows that private industry is absolutely doing the right thing and putting people in front of profits. And I wish that got more attention. That's an excellent point. I really appreciate you pointing that out because, um, I, and I'm guilty of it myself, you know, you kind of forget about that, that the just in general, the risk of research and development for these companies, but at a time that like this that we're going through now, it, it must be magnified. I don't even know how many times. So I do appreciate you uh, pointing that out. We're going to take a quick break. And then when we come back, uh, we'll continue our conversation with my guest, Professor Peter Pitts. He's a former FDA associate commissioner. He's currently a visiting professor at the University of Paris School of Medicine um, and a lot of other uh, accolades uh, that uh, we could talk about. But we want to save time so that we can get him to answer a couple more questions before he has to uh, 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 get on with uh, the rest of his day. So stay tuned. This is Chris Murray, your financial editor on Free Talk Radio 930 WFMD at WFMD.com. And uh, you can go to iTunes and uh, listen to the programs as a podcast. Welcome, everybody, local and uh, across the United States. Thanks so much for listening to the program. Really appreciate it. And um, we're continuing our conversation with my guest, uh, Professor Peter Pitts. He's a former FDA associate commissioner. Um, he's a visiting professor at the University of Paris School of Medicine, named one of the 300 most powerful people in American healthcare by Modern Healthcare Magazine. And his latest book is Common Sense Healthcare Policy for Common Sense Americans and Presidential Candidates. And uh, Professor Pitts, I guess you wrote that in 2019, I believe. That's right. Yeah, so um, this uh, this other stuff wasn't on the horizon. Now it's even more important than ever to uh, to use common sense with uh, with the healthcare sector. It sure is. In fact, I'm writing a new book now uh, that's going to focus a lot on what's happened since 2019, with a large portion, obviously, on on COVID 19. It's an ever changing landscape, and I think if, if nothing else comes out of this, uh, the American public needs to recognize that healthcare and healthcare reform is an ecosystem. Uh, proposition. Yeah, I can't wait to uh, to, to hear uh, from you about your book, so we can um, invite you back on to uh, to talk about that. Um, so, a couple things, real quick. One, family friend of ours, fifty years old, extremely healthy, gets uh, the coronavirus in March. Within a day, he's in Johns Hopkins Hospital. Uh, shortly after that, he's on a respirator. They try three times to get him off and can't. And thank God, finally, the last time they tried, they were able to get him off of it. And we were all, we just couldn't believe that someone is is uh, in good shape like he was that that happened to. Second story, my barber, her grandmother gets it. She's on 80% oxygen. They said, hey, we need to put you on a ventilator. She declines and says, no, please just make me comfortable 
you know, I'm 80 some years old and she had, she is recovering. She was able to get through it without the ventilator or anything else. You know, you hear all of these, these stories and it just seems like it's such a confusing type virus in, in how it attacks people. It sure is. And, you know, we're, again, we're learning every day, but the cautionary tale here is that the anecdote is not the plural. The plural of anecdote isn't data. You know, all these anecdotal stories are important, they, and they, they involve real people. But we need to look at them in, in, a, in a broader context, which just speaks to the, the absolute urgency of making sure that all types of data, whether it's kind of gold standard clinical data or real-world data, you know, is captured and studied. And that's the value of having everybody uh, working on this. You get the best brains looking at all the data, and things are changing fast. We're learning every day. And the hydroxychloroquine, for example, is a good example. Some studies say it's useless. Some studies say it's a lifesaver. Other studies say it's something in the middle. Look at all the data and make the best determination as we go forward. Yeah, absolutely. And then the, uh, the you know, the other thing is um, you hear these stories where, and I know uh, two others, you know, uh, stories myself, where these folks passed away from COVID-19, uh, but it, they were already like one was uh, a fella of, uh, that I know in our area who was already in hospice. The other was, you know, a gentleman who was high 80s, had multiple problems, was really declining, going downhill. But all of these um, these deaths are tagged as COVID-19 deaths. Do you think that's that's accurate or does that actually skew some of the, the data that you mentioned? Well, I, I guess the, the, the best way to put it is it's true, but not accurate. You know, the question that becomes, did they die from COVID or did they die while they were suffering from COVID? You know, as you said, if you've got a life-threatening condition and you're nearing the end of your life, you have COVID and you die, how do you, how do you explain that? Uh, it's, that's a issue we're going to have to really think about once all the data is there. Right now, what we've got to do is act in real time to make sure that we contain this virus and that it is not a cause or the cause of any any more death or as, as few as possible. I, um, I, I watched a, uh, an interview um, uh, from someone in your profession, and um, they were t- they've studied uh, these p- types of pandemics for, it was either 35 or 40 years. And they made the comment that probably one of the worst things that they thought that had been done was uh, schools being shut down because of herd immunity. How do you feel about that? I think it was it was completely appropriate to close down schools. Uh, the Swedish experiment with herd immunity was an enormous failure. Uh, what we've learned subsequent, obviously, is that uh, young children or young people uh, don't seem to uh, catch the virus, or if they do, it's asymptomatic or they have very few symptoms. But again, we're still capturing data that the people who really are at risk are the adults, the teachers and the administrators. So I think that we did the right thing by closing down the schools. But again, it becomes a risk-benefit proposition of reopening them and so it's a lot harder to reopen uh, in a new universe than it was just to close them uh, to try to get people into quarantine. And a tough question, and to my mind, that's the urgency of a vaccine for kids. We want to be able to get kids back in the classroom and as quickly as possible. Um, and then also the other thing uh, that we've heard a lot about that really kind of breaks your heart is these folks that uh, say they were being treated for cancer. They were already in the process and or people needed uh, some screening done or some tests done, and that was not available to them back in the spring and, and not until 
fairly recently where, you know, they could get back into the hospitals and get some of these really, really important things done. Um, I guess that's a, a, a an underlying factor that really we we missed during all of this for a lot of people that were already sick. I think that's right. Yeah, we 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 uh, sort everything down regardless of the risk benefit proposition, and that's one of the things that we're learning. People who needed necessary hospital visits uh, weren't having them, and I think we're going to see moving forward the the uh, the negative impact on the public health uh, that we'll have. Yeah. And and, and, um, again, like you said, it was with pretty much everything that we've been talking about. We have to kind of wait and see and and look at data. Um, But I guess, you know, to kind of wrap things up, how do you feel overall about our progress to uh, to to fight this this uh, virus? And um, are you concerned about, you know, as we get into the end of the year and to the colder months again? I'm optimistic. I think we've made tremendous progress as we move into kind of traditional flu season. You know, one thing that's going to have to get done is we're going to need more people to understand the value of getting a flu vaccine. Even if we don't have a COVID-19 vaccine, the flu vaccine becomes incredibly important because, one, the symptoms are similar, and you want to know what you've got, and doctors will have to assume you have COVID-19 if you haven't gotten a flu shot. And secondly, it's unknown, but there's potential that the annual flu shot might have some impact on COVID-19 resistance, we don't know, but that, that at least is being discussed. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, this uh, uh, past year was the first time ever in my life that um, I got influenza A. And um, so, like you said, the, the shots become more and more important, and um, and as, as does the testing and the vaccine, the race for the cure, if you will, or prevention is all really important. Uh, hey, drop me an email when you uh, finish your new book. I can't wait to uh, to talk with you about it on air. And that way we'll let everybody know how they can get it and, and obviously learn from it. Will do. And thank you very much for having me on. Absolutely, sir. Uh, Professor Peter Pitts, former FDA associate commissioner, kind enough to join us again here on the the program, um, and we, we'll bring that to you when I hear from uh, Professor Pitts. We'll uh, get back in contact, and we'll get him on so you can um, you can get information on his his book. So um, keep your ears peeled for that, and um, we'll go from there. Well, that does it. We're uh, out of time, unfortunately. We could call, uh, talk to Professor Pitts for uh, you know a couple hours, but. Yeah, we're up against a hard break. We got to go. I hope you um, have a great rest of your weekend and um, that, uh, you know, you tune in on um, Monday through Friday when I talk with Bob Miller on the Morning News Express. And then also we'll be back here uh, next weekend for your, um, uh, you know, another edition, if you will, of uh, the Your Financial Editor program. Uh, Just as a reminder, go to murrayfinancialgroup.com, and you can get the top 10 things to consider when preparing for retirement, uh, fact-packed guide for you. And also, uh, you can really learn your, um, your risk number. Do you have a proper amount of risk when it comes to your IRA, 401k, investment portfolio? Uh, We have the tools and the algorithm and whatnot to help you so that you really know that it is just for you, not for anybody else. And um, enjoy the rest of your weekend. I hope you enjoyed the program today. This is Chris Murray wishing you and your family financial success.
town where I grew up. Something in a damn California girl's love. Some people like to make a little fun of the way I talk. Past editions of this program are available in the audio vault at WFMD.com. News Radio 930. WFMD Frederick. A connoisseur media radio station. 7 o'clock. Joe Biden believes he has.